Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 273, recorded November 3rd, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 104, and the firestorm. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Face-to-face meetings are sometimes important, but they can be a hassle and a waste of money. Do more, travel less with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash now. And by the Eco Imagination Challenge from GE. GE and its partners are awarding $200 million to ideas that help build the next generation power grid for the 21st century. For more information and to view and comment on ideas, go to ecomagination.com slash challenge. And by Ford and voice-activated sync. Featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security needs, watches out for you on the Internet, protects your privacy, and the guy who does it all for us, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Steve, good to see you again. And I guess we keep you on your toes in open Wi-Fi coffee shops. Oh, and man. Oh, man. Similar places. Yeah, the fire sheep adventure of last episode. If you did not listen to last week's episode, episode 272, do. Because uh, that fire sheep, I, I installed it. You know, it was so easy to install. I put it on my Mac, uh, my little MacBook Air, brought it to the friendly neighborhood coffee shop. I didn't want to bring it. You know, it's illegal to use, right? I think well, it is. I don't know that it's illegal to view. It would definitely be illegal to double click on anybody and acquire their credentials because then you really have intercepted their communication right. like proactively. But I would argue, you know, if this is just being broadcast as it is, then the broadcaster has some responsibility. And, you know, if you've got a radio that receives what someone's broadcasting, and it shows it to you. It's like, well, okay, how is that wiretapping? So, yeah. I mean, it does get, you know, it is, there's been, well, first of all, the the fire sheep has caused a fire storm, yes. essentially, yes. Of, of reaction. Um, it's been a, uh, it, the, the, the developer was overwhelmed by the reaction from it. He didn't expect anything like it. Um, at the moment, we're at 571,600 plus downloads. So we crossed half a million um, some time ago. When we did the podcast one week ago, we were at 300,000, just a little over 300,000. So um, as you mentioned uh, before we began recording, it's slowing down a little bit, but uh, there's been all kinds of havoc as, as a result. And actually, we'll be talking about a lot of that 
during this uh, this podcast today. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, so I installed it very easily. In fact, I installed it at the coffee shop. <laughs> it was so easy. Um, there, you know, first I wasn't getting a result, and then I realized, oh, I hadn't set the preference about which network card to use. Once I set that, yep, I saw myself right away. Uh, but I didn't see anybody else. I guess nobody else in the coffee shop was using the Wi-Fi. So I, I asked the friend I was sitting next to, uh, to fire up her Facebook. And she did. And immediately I saw her on the list. I said, watch this. I double clicked it and I was in her Facebook page. And I said, I yeah. could, I could leave a status update. I could uh, do everything but change your password. I could even change your privacy preferences right now. Um, and then, uh, uh, we called over the owner of the shop, explained the situation, showed her. She immediately went upstairs and turned on WPA. Ah, that's good. Well, and we ought to say, just say right at the top of the show, I loved the idea that you had for setting the SSID. Oh, yeah, because, of course, the concern is now you're adding a password to your open access point. Oh, no, what do we do? So I said, just change your, you know, it was just change your SSID to Della, which is the original one. Or I, maybe it was bakery. I can't remember. And then parent in parenthesis, password is password or whatever it is. Because you don't need to have a secure password, do you? No, you don't. And that was the whole point is is essentially everyone can know the password, but that still gives them individual encryption. Now, there are problems with that that we'll be talking about today. Oh, good. Um, but but I, I just thought it was very clever, Leo, that you put... You, you, you disclose the password in the name of the network because that's what comes up when you, you know, go to a network for the first time. It lists them all. And if it said like, you know, Della Perens password is, quote, free, unquote, right. or something, right. then you're like, you don't even have to go to the management or have it posted anywhere. You know, everyone would know what it was. I just, that's very, that's a neat idea to put the password in the, in the SSID. So we will get an update, uh, the Firestorm on Firesheep, and we also have questions and answers for steve we've got a lot to talk about before we get going though i want to briefly uh, talk a little bit about our friends at general electric they're sponsoring the show today we've got three great sponsors today we've got citrix we've got ford and we've got ge i think i think people are starting to realize that uh, security is pretty important and the people who listen to security now are a pretty important audience so thank you everybody general electric is uh, doing their eco imagination challenge right now you can find out uh, more about that by going to Ecomagination. There's no I. Ecomagination.com slash uh, challenge. Uh, GE and its partners are awarding, get this, $200 million to innovative ideas that help build the next generation power grid. You know, you've heard about the smart grid, but what's next after that? The 21st century grid. You know, secure, sustainable, robust if you want to participate or you'd like to see the ideas that have been submitted so far or, and comment on them and vote on them, go to Ecomagination, E-C-O-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-I-O-N.com slash challenge. $200 million to invest in great ideas for improving the way energy is produced, transferred, and consumed. And as we move to uh, you know all electric cars and a, and a somewhat more electric future, I think this is a really important area to innovate in. Electricity, I think, is ultimately going to be the most sustainable. So there are um, three categories that GE is making investments in. Renewables, uh, energy from wind, water, and the sun. So, of course, that's a, that's a great way to go. Grid efficiency is the second category. Make that smart grid, convert the smart grid to digital energy. I think that's, we've done some stories on it. I think it's just very, very interesting what they're up to. 
uh, to improve transparency at every step of the grid from power generation to consumption, reduce waste, and give consumers and energy service providers more choices. Third category, making your homes and buildings more eco-friendly. You know, we're, we're growing energy consumption like crazy. We've got to slow that down. Of course, the increase in demand means higher prices for consumers and businesses. So they're looking for innovators who will help us lower that energy consumption by improving the efficiency of our homes and buildings. So it's a great, I think it's a really great cause. It's a really fascinating thing. And $200 million is a great step forward. Ecomagination.com slash challenge. They knew that if they went to security now, there'd be more than a few people out there who are innovators and had some ideas. So get out there and and get to work. All right, Steve, let's, uh, I guess, start with our uh, our regular updates. Well, I did have uh, a little comment. I got a tweet from uh, someone named Ken Papp, P-A-P-P, who, who tweeted, following up from last week's episode, he said, I did my good deeds today, showed managers at Starbucks, oh, great. Corner Bakery, BNN, which must be Barnes & Noble, and Sheraton, Fire Sheep in Action. Fantastic. Jaws hit the floor. Yep. And see, and again, that's why I last week was jumping up and down about this. I mean, yes, I recognize that it creates a problem, but it's a problem that exists whether fire sheep is there to demonstrate it or not. And, you know, you know, you saw the eyeballs on the manager oh, at, yeah. at your bakery oh, when yeah. you said, look, this is what is happening. And what I what I imagine will happen is... This news will spread, you know, there's like an initial adoption frenzy, but we have to know that that behind the scenes, you know, organizations like Facebook are saying, whoa, um, we really need to step up our activities. I did receive a quote um, from them stating that they are working towards moving to pure SSL and they are projecting that they're a few months away. And later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about the costs of moving to SSL because there were some listener questions about that. And uh, I managed, actually, I followed on from something, either you said it during the podcast last week or I heard you mention it some other time, but about the cost that Google experienced. They, pl- tr- they did a blog, blog post. I'll see if I can find that for you. Oh, I have it. Oh, you got um, it. Okay. Yeah, good. so I tracked it down and I got the actual numbers on, you know, Google's experience in moving, for example, Gmail to 100% SSL. So, um, of course, we've got the uh, regular culprits um, in updates for the week. Uh, Firefox, remember that we talked about a just just ex- just discovered zero-day vulnerability that was used to hack people who went to the Nobel Peace Prize website. We mentioned it last week. That, and I, I knew at the time that they were working on an update. Um, they have done that and they pushed it out. So what I found was I don't normally start my machine every day. It runs 24-7. And I leave, I mean, Firefox is like my portal to the world. So I leave it running. And that may be why I'm not getting updates all the time. But when I went under, you know, um, help about or help check for updates, it said, you know, would you like to install the downloaded update? So mine Mm. received it. 
but it didn't automatically like do its thing. So I think, I think Chrome does it automatically, and that's one thing I like about Chrome is it. Oh, it doesn't Chrome have to be is restarted. stealth. Yeah. In fact, I we I have a note here that you know behind the scenes and silently as usual with no fanfare. Chrome went up to version 7.0.517.41. I mean, that's a major, just, major jump, and they didn't say a thing. Yep. Just do, 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 just, you know, all done. <laughs> you know, and it, the obligation, of course, is one of they really better not make a mistake because if they, I mean, they must have a I think you could turn it off. Rollback. Well, oh, and they must have a rollback scenario right. where they're like able to recover from an update that damages the browser because then you wouldn't know if you didn't know that you updated deliberately or that it was just updated, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't know why it broke. <laughs> yeah, what happened? So, yeah. So Firefox is now at 3.6.12, 3.5.15. Thunderbird, because this was an across-the-board fix, the two Thunderbird uh, uh, ver version chains, 3.1.6 and 3.0.10, and SeaMonkey at 2.0.10. So if you've got those, you've got the latest, and that fixes this you know emergency little update that um, uh, our friends at Mozilla did. Now... <laughs> Uh, Shockwave did get fixed. Remember that oh, yeah. we talked about it last, um, we talked about it um, on the podcast that I wanted to make sure people understood the difference between Flash and Shockwave and that unless they knew they needed Shockwave, it may have been some debris that their machine collected over the last few years, which even though they weren't using it, was still creating a vulnerability because the, the nature of the attack was that your browser knows that it has access to the Shockwave plugin. And so if you go to a malicious website that invokes that plugin, the browser goes, oh, yeah, I got that around here somewhere. Haven't fired it up for a few years, but oh, yeah, here you go. And then you're exploited. So, you know, it's a perfect example of something where you, if you don't know you need it, and get rid of it because you're just better off. If you do need it, though, on Friday after the podcast, on Friday, October 29th, Adobe did update Shockwave to fix the problem. So it's now at version 11.5.8.612 uh, for both Windows and Mac. Um, and again, you can either way, if it's if it's installed or if you want to update it, you can check by going to adobe.com slash shockwave slash welcome. And if it gives you the whole animated song and dance, that's Shockwave Player doing that for you, which means it is currently installed. If instead it says, oh, you need a plug-in, well, this is where I would just say, back away from your computer. <laughs> Do not click yes, and, uh, and you're better off without it. Yep. Yeah, I now, don't think there's much stuff anymore that uses Shockwave. No, no, and it's uh, you know it was sort of the the higher power platform, and that you know really didn't take hold. It's mostly using CD-ROMs. You know, I mean that's how old it is. Yeah. Um, once again, we have a zero-day vulnerability hot off the press, actively Jeez. being exploited in the wild by our good friends at Adobe. And I want to ask them, how is that quarterly update cycle going for you? <laughs>
My goodness. Um, they are scrambling because another vulnerability was found in Flash. It's the vulnerability is in Flash, but just like one we talked about earlier this year, I mean, not that long ago, it's invoked via the reader app and or Acrobat, if that's what you're using for your reader. Um, so pretty much across the board, everything is vulnerable. Um, there's no updates, no fix for it now. This just happened like yesterday. Um, Flash Player, well, the current version of Flash Player uh, for Windows, Mac, Linux, and Solaris are vulnerable. The current Flash Player for Android is vulnerable. Notice that the Flash Player for iPad is not, but anyway, that's a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. <laughs> um, and also uh, Reader 9.4 and Acrobat 9.4 for Windows, Mac, Unix, and uh, and uh, yeah, uh, Windows, Macintosh, and Unix, those platforms are. The only thing that gets by is version 8.x is not vulnerable. Uh, Adobe's acknowledged the problem. It's in our old friend, the authplay.dll, which our listeners will remember us talking about last time there was a problem in authplay, A-U-T-H-P-L-A-Y.dll. Um, it's Right now, limited scope, targeted, um, Adobe is scrambling to address it. They have said that they will have it fixed for all those major OSs on the 4th of November. So we're recording this on the 3rd. The podcast normally comes out on the 4th. So, you know, maybe on the day people are listening to this, it's available. So you'll want to make sure that you're running the latest version of Flash uh, when you get the podcast, Android, the Flash Player for Android, they're going to have f pushed out and available on the 9th. And that's for the version 10 versions of Flash. The version 9 updates will be available on the 15th. And uh, I won't rub it in to Adobe any more than I have <laughs> that their next scheduled update yeah. was February 8th of 2011. Okay. We can so, wait till then. No hurry. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, and Adobe's not the only one in the doghouse. We also have a brand new zero-day vulnerability discovered just again, just now, by Symantec security researchers. It's been confirmed by Microsoft. It's an IE. It affects versions 6 and 7 and 8 of IE. But because IE 8 has DEP, um, the data execution protection enabled by default that is preventing data segments from being executable, IE8 is not obviously exploitable or not nearly as easily exploitable, but it's still got the, the inherent problem in it. However, IE9 beta is not vulnerable. Um, what's, what was found was emails being sent to companies with some questionable looking language. I mean, I look at this and it's like, okay, this is really not an English speaker who wrote this. We know we've all seen those, which contained the link to it. The link went to a well-known popular site. And I think it would have been a travel related site based on the, it was blacked out in the sample that I saw, but 
the idea would have been it looked like it was travel arrangements and and lodgings and things. And so right there, the link was this well-known travel-related site where that would tend to give you a sense of, oh, you know, I'm not really sure what this is about. I didn't know I was going on a trip, but, you know, I know about this travel-related site, so I'm going to click the link. Well, the problem was that site had been compromised with some malicious script, which then checked the version of IE the user was running. And in the, in the event that it was version 6 or 7, it bounced them to a site. I can't remember where it was. Um, I want to say Poland, I think, is where, where this site was, which then it, that leveraged this brand new previously unknown zero-day vulnerability in IE, which allowed a Trojan to be installed. And they they actually watched, they did a packet capture when they, the, the semantic guys did, when they deliberately followed the link and saw what happened. And they watched the someone connect to the Trojan and then t- begin typing commands from wherever they were located, you know, into this machine you wouldn't normally see it. It was going on in the in the network traffic connected to essentially an invisible console that was running provided by the Trojan. So Microsoft's aware of it. They I, I received by email. Uh, actually, after I'd already put this together, in came a security alert um, noting that, that they were acknowledging this new problem. So where are we? We're still, it may not be time for second Tuesday of November, but uh, so maybe they'll fix it by next Tuesday or maybe if it becomes a problem, they'll fix it faster. Otherwise, that we may wait, you know, five weeks for it. But at this point, no idea how to mitigate it. No, no idea of what to do to turn it off. You know, if anything happens that's significant, I'll, of course, let everyone know next week. Yeah, uh, there was and I'm sure you probably saw this, Leo, a new iPhone lock screen bypass was discovered for iOS 4.1, um, that is for, for iOS 4.1 phones, um, you tap the, on a locked iPhone, you tap the emergency call button, then enter three pound signs. Actually, you can enter anything. Oh, no, oh, okay. Yeah, you don't have to enter, you know, it just is, you don't want to enter 911, obviously. <laughs> so just any number of pound signs is good because it won't dial anything. Ah, and then, then you hit the green call button, and then immediately press the lock button. Yeah, the timing which, is tricky. So the first time it may not work. You got to do it just right, uh, uh, but it's okay. easy to do. And then it unlocks the phone, and you have access to the phone, voicemail, call history. Yeah, the only you you don't get access to everything on the phone, just the phone app. Right. But that's enough to to really screw with somebody. Well, and I just wanted to let our listeners know, for the sake of their awareness, that you know, if you're assuming that your your phone lock is is doing what you want, it ain't. you know, you might hand it to somebody or, or leave it somewhere and, you know, it's not. Let's see if so I can, is, let's see if I can do this here. So you press s- emergency call yeah. and uh, it, do, it really doesn't matter what you dial, but yeah, three pound signs is fine. And then the key is to press the green button, uh, the call button and the, and the, and the top button, the on off button pretty much in a timely way. Yeah, what I what I read was hit the green call button and immediately press yeah. the lock button. Yeah, and it just takes a little practice, but it's it's. Whoops, I unlocked it. <laughs> let's, let's let's lock it again. And now what? Slide to unlock. Said, emergency what I, call. 
Um, sorry. Um, what Apple said was that they were not going to do a patch. Yeah. You see, I got right would, into it. It worked, huh? Yep. Yep. That they were going to fix it in version 4.2. Well, and 4.2 is due soon. Right. So that's good news. But right now, I you know, without entering in the... Uh, the, key, the uh, password, I was able to get into my phone app right <laughs> that nice? Well, you got skills, Leo. <laughs> I got mad skills. Wait, wait, wait. Did you just break the law? No. I'm sure no, it's not. my phone. I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, India has now joined the UAE in announcing that they're dropping their promise or threat to ban BlackBerry services, which... Always was, you know, we've talked about it before. I was a little uncomfortable about what was going on behind the scenes here. Um, what the, the direct quote was, BlackBerry parent company Research in Motion, RIM, and the ministry reached an interim agreement regarding government access to data sent over the BlackBerry network. RIM has promised a final proposal by January 31, 2011. And then what the UAE had said similarly was that, quote, RIM had offered a workable solution. What I, in digging around some more, I found an Indian newspaper online which had some details. And, and the, the, the concern had been raised that this interim solution wasn't very secure. Apparently what has happened is... PCs have been installed in telecom providers. That is, so, you know, you've got your, whoever it is that's anchoring your BlackBerry wirelessly to the land. There's a PC installed there in which RIM installs some proprietary software, which is able to reach out to RIM and contact them so that they perform the decryption, and then the decrypted data is sent back to that machine. So essentially, it's a sanctioned man-in-the-middle um, architecture, which I got the sense that it was temporary, but they're, like, they're going to come up with something. Everyone keeps talking about a, final, a formal or final agreement or uh, resolution will be made by the end of January 2011. So it does look like, you know, RIM came up with a technological means for weakening what was believed to be, you know, very strong endpoint to endpoint encryption because it was either that or, or you know, succumb to um, the service being shut down in, um, you know, throughout the region. So... You know, I was hoping that uh, they were able just to say, no, sorry, we can't do it. The technology won't let us, and uh, we hope you won't disconnect us. But apparently, uh, you know, the, the suits won, as suits do. Suits have lawyers by the dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other little bit of news I saw that I thought was interesting was that Amazon won a very important privacy battle with North Carolina tax collectors. North Carolina has been pursuing Amazon for some time, saying that we want complete records of every purchase 
every North Carolina resident has made from 2003 through 2010. That is through now. They want to collect sales tax. That's exactly what they want to do. Yeah. And and just, I'm, I know you're aware of this. I, I wasn't until relatively recently that the fact that we don't pay sales tax on goods that we purchase over the internet from out of state doesn't relieve us the obligation oh, no. of paying them. Yeah. It mean it only relieves the sender the obligation of collecting them. In fact, in California on your uh, on your income tax return it asks you, is there any tax you want to give us? <laughs> and <laughs> you're legally you bound to give it to them. If you if yeah, you don't declare so, it, you can go to jail. Yeah, so you know, we owe we we who are buying things on the internet, it's called use tax. It's not sales tax, it's use tax. It's it's the same. They just use a different word for it. But so so here's so I mean you can imagine the issue is that here's all these companies that are not taxing the customers and they're saying, well, you know, we can't possibly deal with all of the different state, county, city sales tax variations in order to to do this and you know there's been a lot of effort in congress to keep a taxation moratorium on the internet under the the interest of of not doing anything to upset the apple cart of how nice you know e-commerce is growing and the internet's wonderful and and you know it's good for the economy and all that yet States are looking around and saying, wait a minute, look at all the money that you know, we're not collecting because our residents, we know, are not reporting the, the, you know, fairly the sales tax on the, on the goods they're purchasing from out of state. Now, Amazon has no facility in North Carolina, so they, by law, they don't have an obligation to, to collect that tax. Um, a U.S. Just District Judge, Marsha Peckham, Peckman, um, in Washington State, said that North Carolina's request went too far and, quote, runs afoul of the First Amendment. So she granted a Amazon a summary judgment on this suit. And actually, it was Amazon who sued North Carolina basically to buzz off and, and leave them alone. Um, and Amazon stressed in its lawsuit that purchases, like reminded everyone in North Carolina, that purchases of books, DVDs, Blu-ray discs, and other media enjoy special privacy protections. And so this, the reason I wanted to bring it up, not only is I think it's interesting relative to e-commerce, but there, it, this turns on issues of privacy because there's, there's um, three different uh, rulings and law that pertain. In a 2002 decision, a, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that the First Amendment protects, quote, an individual's fundamental right to purchase books anonymously, free from government interference. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yes. Um, and in this case, the justices tossed out a subpoena from police to the tattered cover, cover bookstore at request, re requiring them to provide information about all the books that a specific customer had purchased. So they were trying to, you know, for whatever reason, you know, what books has this guy bought? Well, it turns out um, that, you know, a First Amendment right is 
that we can buy whatever books we want without the government finding out what they are. And then in a 2007 case, federal prosecutors tried unsuccessfully to force Amazon to identify thousands of customers who bought books online, but abandoned the idea after a judge rebuked them. Judge Stephen Crocker in Wisconsin ruled that, quote, the subpoena is troubling because it permits the government to peek into the reading habits of specific individuals without their prior knowledge or permission, unquote. And then finally, there's actually a formal law in, you know, uh, uh, above and beyond what the, the First Amendment of the Constitution provides um, called the Video Privacy Protection Act, which makes it illegal for anyone selling illegal for anyone selling movies to disclose customer information to anyone, including state tax collectors. The 1988 law specifically covers pre-recorded video cassette tapes, but also sweeps in similar audio-visual material, which, of course, would include DVDs and Blu-ray discs. So I thought that was just um, interesting info. Of course, as you, I'm sure, know, the Patriot Act does allow the federal government to find that stuff out. Uh, yeah, a little override. Yeah, there's a little override there. Yeah, yeah. I got a, a letter from the state of California uh, this year saying, we've decided not only do you have to pay use tax, but we want you to pay quarterly installments on your use tax. Uh-huh. But it's interesting. Now, can they, uh, in this North Carolina judgment, not everything Amazon sells is books and movies. Correct. But I guess they can't pick and choose and say, send us everything that's not books and movies. Or can they? Well, it's not clear that this is over. Um, oh, basically... Boy. You know, they Amazon lost this one, but apparently there's also some. They had they had what 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 had happened was Amazon tried to satisfy them by providing the the material anonymously and in some sort of aggregate. Like there's this much tax no, in this county yeah. and this much they, over they here. They want to know who. <laughs> Come exactly. on, they can't. That, now I have to say, in 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 their defense, if you had a bookstore in the state of North Carolina or in California. You have to collect sales tax. You see it as a real competitive disadvantage to a company yes. like Amazon that doesn't. And, yes. and and it's putting bookstores out of business. So there is an argument to be made that, you know, maybe Amazon should be collecting sales tax. Well, and if, you know, Amazon is, is Seattle-based, right? Um, and if, you're, if you are where Amazon is, then Amazon does have to collect sales tax for you. So that's a little weird, too. So. Right, but that's normal, I think. Yes. If, if they do business in that state, then they have to collect sales. Yes, tax. exactly. Okay, so the the cost of ubiquitous SSL, um, following from a comment that you made, um, I did some research because I was curious what Google's experience was in switching themselves over to SSL because there are and there are a number of different gotchas in doing this and of course this all relates tangentially to uh the the whole fire sheep issue for example why is it that facebook is needing several months of exploration and work to turn on ssl like you know what's the problem well the one thing that i'm that, that i always hear is that there is a computational burden and we, this we've 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 always sort of I mean it's like it's one of those urban legends that you just can't shake loose because it was once upon a time true a long long time ago 
Yeah. Um, and it hasn't been for a long time. So I want to just, just, you know, take the opportunity to dispel this with a little more data to back it up. The reason I have known it could not be true that there was a, a computational burden to SSL that, that was significant in this day and age is not only that, of course, processes are much faster than they used to be. You could argue, well, yes, but bandwidths are much higher. Many more connections are coming in. So the, the load on the servers has scaled at the same pace that, that their power has increased and so forth. It's like, okay, fair enough. But what SSL acquired, and we talked about this in our podcast where we went delve, we delved into the minutiae of the SSL protocol is the ability to resume an existing session. That is, resume already negotiated credentials. So what happens is the first time a client contacts the server, if the client already has in its own cache the the credentials, which are, like for example, less than 24 hours old, for the domain that, you know, and, and like otherwise in every way qualify, when it's negotiating its handshake, it will provide the ID to the server that was of this negotiation that it already went through, which was the expensive part. Normally, if that isn't the case, there is a one-time cost to do the public key work to to verify the uh, signature on the certificate and to use public key encryption in order to set up this this negotiated credential but that's that has to be done one time and doesn't need to be done for every other connection so ssl now has and clients all are able to cache that credential which means that for example in the we'll take facebook when you, when you initiate a connection, you're going to have to log on. So that's going to take you into an SSL connection where your username and password is exchanged and you get the controversial unsecure key. And then the way Facebook currently operates, it takes you back down to an, a non-secured, non-SSL connection where this cookie is transacted in the clear which is, of course, the hook that Fire Sheep uses for being able to hijack or sidejack the session. So the point is that client and server had to have a brief SSL connection anyway. So if Facebook instead kept the session that is all communications secure, then Every time the, the client connected, as the user is clicking buttons and moving around the site and doing things, the client would be handing back to the server the ID that they had agreed on for this cached session, and there's zero overhead. No more, no public key, no, no um, computationally expensive public key work needs to be done again. So, so the fact is, it's just not expensive. What I loved was I actually found a quote from the Google engineers who who were responsible for moving Gmail 
over to Pure SSL. And they wrote, quote, if there's one point that we want to communicate to the world, it's that SSL slash TLS is not computationally expensive anymore. Ten years ago, it might have been true, but it's just not the case anymore. You, too, can afford to enable HTTPS for your users. I love it. In January this year of 2010, Gmail switched to using HTTPS for everything by default. Previously, it had been introduced as an option, but now all our users use HTTPS to secure their email between their browsers and Google all the time. In order to do this, we had to deploy no additional machines and no special hardware. That's key. On our production front-end machines, SSL TLS accounts for less than 1% of the CPU load, less than 10K of memory per connection, and less than 2% network overhead. Now, that can add up if you do a lot of transactions, though. That's not not necessarily negligible. Well, no, that's percent. I mean, right. so it's it, it's that that's a fixed yeah, but percentage. If you, if you do a million, tra- I mean, ten k is a lot of transa- a lot of memory. If you do a lot of transactions, I'm just saying there is a cost. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Um, and it's not clear to me what the cost would be without SSL. That is, that ten k that could be oh, connection overhead, right? Yeah. So it may not just all be SSL right. um, overhead, right? right. Anyway, so they say many people believe that SSL takes a lot of CPU time, and we hope the above numbers, public for the first time, will help to dispel that. And then they finally, they, they, and this blog post goes way on, but they said, if you stop reading now, you only need to remember one thing. SSL slash TLS is not computationally expensive anymore. So that was their message. And they, and they released that shortly after Firesheep came out. I mean, I think it was clearly a message... To people like Facebook and Twitter, you don't have a, a, a economic excuse for not doing this. Yes, and you know uh, there there was some some flack that I received last week from people who didn't quite understand my the the whole notion of of SSL everywhere HTTPS ubiquitously because they said well you know but certificates are not free and i I have a web server and why should i have to be you know secure it it's like whoa 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 whoa." we're just talking about servers which have something to protect you know if you're running a web server and you don't have an ssl certificate then you're you know there's no security that your server is offering and obviously therefore i mean hopefully no need for it hopefully you're not doing anything um over unsecured connections which would ever need to be secured because you know you're not able to take the person into ssl so i was by no means meaning to say that you know https needs to go i mean http needs to go away and be completely replaced by HTTPS. Not not at all. I'm just saying that all of those scenarios which we talked about with, you know, Amazon and and Facebook and MySpace and Twitter, um, in those scenarios, it absolutely makes sense to switch to HTTPS if you are ever using it, always use it is the point. So right. there's no, you know, it's not like you're having to buy a certificate that you don't already have. 
You know, you, you need one in order to allow people to log on securely. Well, you ought to also protect all the time. <laughs> everything else. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, it does it does create some problems. For example, the 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 famous mixed content problem. You know, browsers have always been a, been warning us if some of the content of a page is secured and some isn't. That is, for example, if a if a secure page, an HTTPS page, asks for like even JPEGs and GIFs and and PNG images, which are HTTPS, then the browser will say, "Whoa, uh, not all this page is coming, you know, securely." And it's like, okay, you know, it it wor it worries people. Um, it's not clear to me that it, it needs to, although there are, you know, you could design exploits that would that would take advantage of it. For example, if if CSS or if chunks of script was being pulled, then while the page was um, the page itself was secure, important pieces of the page could be pulled that were not secure. The reason I the reason I bring it up is that I can see a problem with third-party providers of content to a page. For example, advertising sites. Um, advertising is almost exclusively non-secure right now. Um, and if you were going to switch your site over to SSL, exclusively to HTTPS, and you were going to be hosting ads, then you you would need to be using advertisers that were also able to provide the ads over SSL. Otherwise, your users would be getting these scary boxes saying not everything on this page is secure. And, you know, in this day and age where we want people to be more security aware, you'd like that to concern people. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 I can see Facebook needing some time to get their act together. I'm really glad that they are. And I, I think it's, it's very clear. I mean, Amazon, um, actually, when I was talking to Mark Thompson about exactly this issue, because he's setting up a very large and comprehensive web system for a deal that he's working on, he was talking about the issue of SSL. And I said, well, you know, turn on all the time. And this was like months ago. I said, just have it on all the time. It's not expensive anymore. Just do it. And you'll never have to worry about it. And he said, well, I've been looking at what other sites do. And he said, I noted that Amazon doesn't normally keep you secure as you're poking around doing things. But anytime you do something important, like, you know, you want to check out your shopping cart, they, they require you to re-authenticate right then. And so, and of course, that is over SSL. So, so Amazon's engineers for whatever reason, decided it was worthwhile really moving people back out of SSL the rest of the time and moving them into it, you know, literally you're jumping back and forth as you do on Amazon. I'm, it would be wonderful if one of these days we just see, you know, Amazon staying green up in the bar all the time, knowing that, you know, no Snoopy people can see, you know, what I'm doing on Amazon. 
you know, they may not be able to purchase something on my behalf, but they, you know, they're able to, to right. you know, you know, watch where I wander around and what I'm looking at, what I'm searching for, and so forth. Yeah, just turn no it on. Business. Cost nothing. Turn it on. Leave it on. Zach, you already got the cert. And I did have a uh, a fun story. I, I always try to find something different um, about Spinrite. Uh, Gary Harris uh, wrote the 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 subject was Spinrite testimonial. Too hot to handle. Steve, I first crawled out from under a non-podcast-aware rock last Christmas when my son <laughs> bought me an iPod. I had no idea the wealth of tech information available until then. Oh, Where yeah. had I been? Oh, yeah. I immediately latched on to Security Now podcast and promptly OD'd on the first 60 or so episodes until I finally caught up with the current flow sometime last February. I've been a sp- I have been spin right aware for many years, but I kind of forgot about it. And when I got out of the business for a while, I just had no need for it. While guzzling down your show episodes at an alarming rate, I decided to purchase Spinrite. I immediately went online, bought a copy, downloaded, and then sat in wait for my first hard disk failure. I didn't have to wait long. I had a client who had purchased a computer that was running much too slowly. I immediately expected, I'm sorry, I had a client who had a computer that was running much too slowly. I immediately expected spyware, viruses, yada, yada. But I found no evidence of this. She said the computer had been running like this for at least a year. Before becoming Spinrite Reaware, I would probably have simply cleared the drive and reinstalled. But I decided to put the drive through my newly acquired Spin Cycle. I like About that. 20... The Spin Cycle. I like <laughs> the that. The Spin Cycle. About 20%... Into a level two check, Spinrite told me the drive was too hot to handle. It stopped scanning and let me know there was a problem. So I let the drive cool down and resume the scan. It halted a few minutes later with the same message. I determined that, based on the client's statement about when it started, this drive had been in a state of near failure for probably a year becoming slower and slower as it dealt with all the error conditions caused by its overheating. When I powered down the computer and re- to remove the drive, it was literally too hot to handle. I had to let it cool. Since I had determined the slowness was due to the hard drive itself and not any malware residing on it, I was able to image this hot potato and apply the image to, an, to a new hard drive. The client called me a few days later and told me the computer was probably running 10 times faster than ever before. In reality, it was now running normally for the first time in a year. Yeah. And he says, Spinrite is, pardon the pun, a cool product. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think when you when you look at something like the MacBook Air, you really realize that the speed of your computer is often I.O. bound. And uh, something that, uh, a hard drive that's laboring... Yep. It's going to really slow it down. Yep. I have noticed um, when I've been purchasing um, state-of-the-art SATA drives, they're, um, they really do seem to be running cooler than drives used to be. So I think, I think we're getting heat under control. One of the things that Spinrite does is it, it pulls the drive smart data 
constantly while it's running that allows it to do a whole bunch of cool things that nothing else has ever done, like monitoring the rate at which error correction is being used, um, monitor the health of the drive on the fly, and show you in a series of bar charts, which are displayed while SpinWrite's running, if, if these health parameters are being pushed down by using SpinWrite, that shouldn't happen. And it's a really very sensitive, very cool early warning system that the drive's fine, but it's having more trouble than it ought to. And one of the SpinWrite does is check the drive's temperature um, because, of course, we all know that, you know, people's fans or, or, or vents get clogged. The, the, some people actually stick their computer in a closet as if that, you know, that's going to, you know, keep the, the, the machine cool. Um, so many people have, have been surprised that the problems they were having, you know, were just that the drive was getting too hot. So although SpinWrite uh, was useful for keeping the drive in good shape, it also said, yeah, and, you know, do something about ventilation here, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we've got some great questions for Steve Gibson coming up in just a little bit. Uh, about a lot of topics, including Fire Sheep. More about Fire Sheep. Before we do that, though, I'd like to mention our friends at Citrix who make the great go-to-meeting. Go-to-meeting is uh, going to save you time and money on face-to-face meetings. You know, sometimes they are important, but for the most part, they can be a hassle, cost you a lot of money and travel. Frequently, people turn to the you know, teleconference, the, the conference call to do it, but that's kind of dull and unengaging and that's where go to meeting comes in it takes a boring old conference call and makes it as good as a face-to-face meeting engaging visual see how it works is you got go to meeting on your system you either ahead of time with it with it integrates with outlook you just send an an email message saying hey let join me for this meeting or even while you're on the phone in the conference call you say you know i want to show you this you tell your conferees to go to go to meeting.com you give them the meeting id now even if they don't have the software ahead of time, 30 seconds later, they're seeing your computer on their screen. They could show you their screen on your computer. You can have 15 people at the same time seeing what you're doing. It's great for product reviews, for sales presentations, collaborating, training. Anytime it would be helpful for the person you're on the phone with to see what you're looking at on your computer, go to meeting is going to be a boon for you. And it'll save you a lot of money and travel and a lot of hassle and stress, too. You can try it free right now. All you have to do is go to gotomeeting.com slash now. That's our new Security Now URL, gotomeeting.com slash now. And uh, please use that one so we get credit for the show and so forth. And that way you'll be installing GoToMeeting free. You'll be able to use it for 30 days. See if it works for you. Have as many meetings as you want. Never cost your conferees anything. You're going to love it, I think. Try it free, 30 days. Go to meeting.com slash now. And we thank them for their support, and you can thank them too by uh, giving it a try. Now, are you ready, Steve? Questions, Absolutely. answers. Steve Gibson, he's on the hook, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, he chose these questions and answers. Is that so. on the hook or off the hook? He's, he is off the hook. That's true, uh, too. <laughs> okay. Question one comes to us from Todd Karawaski or Karawaski. Steve, actually, he tweeted this one. Yeah. Thought you should know, Microsoft Security Essentials wants to protect my computer from the Fire Sheep add-on. And he sent us a twit pic of uh, the message he's getting from Microsoft Security Essentials. I'll, uh, I'll give you a view of that here, and we'll zoom in. It says, uh, hack tool Fire Sheep, alert level medium. This program has potentially unwanted behavior. 
So uh, they, they think of it as uh, malware. <laughs> so Microsoft was very quick to respond to this. I think that's um, a not, not unreasonable. Um, okay, except that it's, remember that a user would install this himself or herself on their own machine deliberately thinking that it's cool. And then Microsoft Security Essentials is saying, wait a minute, um, this thing is potentially undesirable. So it's sort of, I guess it's protecting you from yourself or protecting mm. you from from getting in trouble. Um, you know, It doesn't say it's, it says it's medium threat. It doesn't say it's, you know, uh, malware exactly. Well, see, I'm, I salute the fact that Mozilla chose not to block this. Oh, interesting. You yeah. know, they, they, I mean, they, and they've got a blog posting where they discuss this and they said, you know, this is not, this is not, uh, doing anything that the user who installs it doesn't expect it does what the user does expect right. it's open source it's available it's not taking advantage of of exploits or 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 flaws in in firefox you know it's a utility and we don't block utilities so you know and 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 i think it is turning on um raw sockets i mean are are there some potential risks from using it i really can't see any risks okay. to the user it's something that the user wants now the good news is the microsoft security essentials does allow you to say oh thank you for right. watching out for me and i'll spend it's, your it's, time it's, it's, it's more informational spend your time patching windows bugs <laughs> yeah, please by the way yes <laughs> Uh, yes, it's more informational. So I did get a kick out of the fact that that MSE is saying, "Oh, wait, you got Fire Sheep. Well, are you sure you want that? They, uh, they, yeah, they, I'm having a lot of fun with it. <laughs> oh, and Leo, I didn't mention college campuses just went insane. Oh, I bet over Fire Sheep. Well, and there is a risk that you'll be arrested for using it. So maybe that's what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you misuse it anyway. Yeah. Um, I wonder, do you get an error in uh, MSE if you install things like Kane Enable or uh, Wireshark, other hacking tools? That's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm sure somebody will tell me. Paul Kowalski in Seattle, Washington with question two. He wonders whether WEP is enough. Stephen Leo, would using WEP encryption be sufficient to protect from fire sheep? We've mentioned that WPA works. In fact, somebody asked me, do you need WPA2 or just regular WPA? So so clarify, what will protect us from fire sheep, what won't? Well, we've got a bunch of questions that sort of take us through that, that, that were coming up. Um, so what Paul was asking was about WEP. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of the answer is yes and no. Um, any encryption will protect you. Because Fire Sheep, Fire Sheep relies upon you using no encryption. Unencrypted packets. Otherwise, it can't see what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. It's, just, it's just passively sniffing the network. Right. Now, the problem, however, with WEP is that, there, that unlike WPA, which does negotiate a per-connection per encryption... And we'll be talking a little bit more about that, actually extensively more about that here shortly. Remember that the way WEP works is that everybody on the same WEP access point uses the same WEP key. And that that allows you then to decrypt all of the traffic on the access point. So, so even though this is encrypted, it, it would protect you from fire sheep 
if the hacker did not have your password, but it would not protect you from FireSheep if the person running FireSheep did have your password. So, in other words, in a public Wi-Fi hotspot scenario, we could never recommend turning on web encryption as a mitigation to the threat because it would provide none. In fact, FireSheep would work perfectly on a web-encrypted hotspot where everybody had the password in order to be on the hotspot uh. because all the pack all the packets are encrypted identically and decrypted identically. So there you go. WPA yep. okay, there you go. So really weapons not a good solution because that's that's what we're talking about turning it on in, in public access points, right? Correct. Yeah. And and just to remind Paul that WEP is so badly broken now, um in fact that was the title of one of our podcasts uh, that I think it takes 60 seconds to, to crack it. So it's just, <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> even if you didn't have the, the password, you could get in and then use FireSheep. Yeah. Chatroom is telling me that Microsoft's Security Essentials does uh, flag Kane Enable, the hack tool Kane Enable, but does not flag the packet sniffing tool Wireshark. So there you go. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got Wireshark everywhere. And so I, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Uh, question three from Doug Johnson in Oram, Utah. He suggests using WPA might not help much. He says, in your last episode, you mentioned that turning on WPA solves the problem of session hijacking via insecure cookies, as FireSheep does. This is a great step in the right direction, but it really isn't a cure-all. Even with WPA turned on, networks are still susceptible to ARP cache poisoning. Used in combination with Kane Enable, FireSheep would still work even with WPA encryption turned on. A malicious user can send instructions to other computers to tell them to direct all internet traffic to their machine, and that computer pretends to be the network's gateway, at which point client isolation becomes meaningless, and FireSheep is able to capture all packets from targeted computers just as if the network was unencrypted and had no protection. The only real solution is for websites to force use of SSL for all authentication information. Is he talking talk about the cache poisoning that was a problem in the... Uh, the uh, TKIP version of WPA? No. This is um, something else. First, I want to first I want to acknowledge <clears throat> the last sentence of what Doug wrote. The only real solution is for websites to force use of SSL for all authentication information. That's absolutely right. But we don't have that today. You know, we're gonna wait a few months, maybe we'll get it from Facebook. Who knows what Amazon's gonna do and so forth. So so don't I don't want anyone to misunderstand that I'm suggesting um, that turning on WPA solves the problem completely and forever, and that it's as good as or equivalent to individual websites really doing what they should be doing, which is protecting that credential which was negotiated during secure time, and they're you know they're spreading it around when you're not secure. So I agree with his last line, but he's wrong about the use of Kane Enable with WPA. And so, and so uh, this highlights a really good point, which is why WPA is so handy in this case. And it's what makes it different from WEP. With, with, with WEP, you, you, as I just said, all the packets are encrypted and decrypted with a, with a single identical key. With WPA, each client negotiates their own their own uh it's called a pairwise temporary key ptk 
on the fly when when they associate with the access point. When they connect up, they get their own pairwise temporary key, which is unique to their connection. And everybody's got their own, and that's what's used for running the AES um, cipher. So, so what Kane Enable does and what ARP spoofing does, which we've talked about, is it allows you to essentially make yourself look like the base station to a user so that their traffic comes through you. The problem is under WPA, even if you did that, and, and you can un, with WPA because it is an Ethernet protocol, which means there is a broadcast, there is the uh, GTK, the group temporary key, which is how broadcast packets are handled. Since there is a need to be running like Ethernet, and Ethernet has a notion of broadcasting, which is necessary for things like ARP to function, because a, a station needs to say, hey, where's the gateway here? So it needs to send it out without knowing where it's going. It needs to just broadcast it out into, literally, into the ether um, and allow the gateway to respond. So WPA provides this group temporal key as a means for for ARP to function, which means that's exploitable by anyone using that access point. That, so that would allow them to redirect somebody else's traffic to them instead of to the gateway. The problem is, once the traffic gets to them, it's encrypted with their pairwise temporary key, which the attacker doesn't have. He's got his own. And so the only thing he can do if he wanted to, would be to forward it on to the gateway, in which case, you know, he's really not a man in the middle. He's sort of a shuttle um, in, in the middle. He hasn't achieved any sort of interception at all at that point because, because WPA does provide that individual encryption keying per station, which makes it very useful as a mitigation against Fire Sheep. You turn on WPA... Bang, Fire Sheep no longer works. Hmm. We're going to take a break, come back with uh, more questions, more answers uh, from Steve. We've got some good ones. Uh, because we're running a little bit late, I apologize to folks uh, who are tuning in for this week in Google. We'll get to it in about 15, 20 minutes, a little bit late. We had that uh, Facebook announcement, which we covered live. And Steve, I'm going to truncate, I think, the last two questions. Uh, no problem. But we will get all of these Fire Sheep questions in. I think those are... Uh, yes, very important. Before we go on, though, I would like to say hello to the friends at Ford who have been so supportive of all of our podcasts. We had such fun going out to Dearborn and seeing the the uh, the Rouge plant out there. And I'll tell you, every single day, I thank my lucky stars that I've got a Ford Mustang with the sink installed. I use it all the time. Today, Henry got in. He, uh, he just updated his iPhone to 4.2. I said, hey, let's let's uh, connect it up to the sink so you can listen to your music. Would you like to use Bluetooth or the built-in USB connection? He said, well, what's the difference? I said, if you connect it to the USB connection, then I can press a button on my steering wheel and say, you know, play, uh, he likes Lil Wayne. Play Lil Wayne, and it'll play Lil Wayne. And he knew I would never do that. So <laughs> I said, if you use the USB, the A2DP streaming Bluetooth from your phone, then you control it on the phone. He said, well, let me do that so I can play the music I like. Uh, I, I just love the Ford Sync. It is the true hands-free solution for phone calls, 
for things, you know, important things like a 911 uh, support, built-in automatic 911 if, if the airbags deploy, uh, for playing your music, and, of course, turn-by-turn directions. Even if you don't opt for the more expensive, as I did, uh, GPS, it's all Ford Sync vehicles have GPS and will tell you, will talk you through your trip. They even learn your route and, and will let you know ahead of time about traffic alerts along the route. It's just a fantastic product. You can go to the website, SyncMyRidePodcast.com, and find out a whole lot more about Ford Sync. Before you buy a new vehicle, just at least see what the state of the art is in true hands-free. Keeps your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, but connects you with the outside world in an amazing way. It reads texts that come in on my Android phone. It reads them to me. And it's and I could send a canned response back, again, all without taking my hands off the wheel or my eyes off the road. It's mind-boggling go to syncmyridepodcast.com take a look for yourself and then when you're out and about ready to buy a new vehicle or even if you just want to check it out go to your local ford lincoln or mercury dealer and say i want to test drive not just the car but i want to test drive the ford sync syncmyridepodcast.com we thank ford for their support of all of our shows but especially of security now all right moving along you ready for more questions mr gibson you betcha uh, we're going to talk about uh, a WPA no PSK mode for Wi-Fi, the pre-shared key. Steve, I just got done watching the Fire Sheep episode, our last episode. Since WPA came out, I always thought they should have an encrypted version of open access. Oh, wouldn't that be a good idea? Mm. Where you only have a secure connection to the access point, indicating with the SSID that it's open, Something he would say call no no PSK mode. Personally, I think we need to completely ban open Wi-Fi and WEP and possibly require user access control even in order to connect them or connect to them as it is, in fact, very insecure, especially now that we have a Fire Sheep plug-in. Now, I can't see any more vulnerabilities with having no PSK than telling everyone the password and making it the same as the SSID. I think they need to add this to part of the standard. Good luck with that. <laughs> you know how long that takes. As we already have PSK and Enterprise 802.11x with the radius authentication, why not this one? I want to make one final comment that this does not protect us against man-in-the-middle attacks where the Wi-Fi access point is impersonated. Uh, that's what we were talking about before, right? right? The only way you can prevent this is to use trusted certificates that are, are already installed on the machine, uh, as, as is done with SSL in the first place. But I think it would still be a huge step forward in wireless security. Does that sound right? Okay, so here's the problem. And this is the final piece of this complex puzzle with WPA. If, if you don't have authentication, and authentication is the most, is, is the single critical thing that SSL and certificates provides. It's, it's the authentication that we get when we receive the certificate from the server that we check versus our own list of certificate authorities validating that the certificate we received is legitimate and was hopefully issued by a responsible certificate authority that allows us to believe that the connection we have, we can trust. Without authentication, there is always nothing we can do about it always a vulnerability to any kind of impersonation to they're just there if you think about it there's just there just isn't isn't a way to avoid it um 
And WPA, WPA has that problem even when it's encrypted. So here's the vulnerability for that exists if we tell open hotspots like Starbucks to turn on WPA. I say it's better than not, but it's but here's why it's not perfect. A someone listening in while a new user is connecting, is associating with the access point, will be able to see all of the traffic going in each direction, which means that there isn't anything, fundamentally, there isn't anything either the new user or the access point can know that the attacker cannot know. So if you have an attacker who's able to eavesdrop from the beginning, think about that. There's nothing either of the endpoints can know that the attacker doesn't because the the attacker is equivalent to, you know, just being another user. Right. It's a participant. Yes. And so in practical terms, what that means is that the way WPA negotiates is that the access point sends its invents a random number generates a random number and says what's called the anonce a n o n c e a one time use random number to the access point the access point um essentially um uh it knows what the shared password is so it generates a random number, its own, called S-nonce, the station nonce, and it merges that with the with the A-nonce, the access point nonce, and the password, and then digitally signs that, and then and then sends the access point back its S-nonce. So, so. The access point, now the access point knows the A nonce that it sent, the S nonce that was received, and it's able to verify the signature, which was signed using the shared password in order to verify that it wasn't interfered with in transit. So, so the access point has the two random numbers, the one it generated and the one it got from the station. The station has the same two random numbers, the one it generated and the one it got from the station, which allows them then to generate from that the pairwise temporary key. And they're able to then encrypt everything under that. The problem is an eavesdropper saw the anons go to the station and saw the s nonce come back from the station of the access point. Um, it can just assume that it was properly signed, but it, since it has the password also, it can even verify the signature. That is, that it, if it's in from the very beginning of the conversation and is sniffing the traffic, although it's, it's, it has to do much more than Fire Sheep does, it's absolutely able to get that particular connection's Key. Now, an open access point 
is just unencrypted traffic flying everywhere. So that, I mean, that's what FireSheep leverages. So turning on WPA, I would, I still say, is very useful to do because you're bringing up encryption and you're raising the bar much higher than it is now. Um, there certainly could be FireSheep Pro, which, you know, which is able to watch connect watch stations associate and obtain their per station pairwise temporal key you could even have a fancy one which deliberately goes in and disassociates a station forcing it to reassociate which would cause it to renegotiate a new key that way you could get the key for even existing stations so so having everyone using the same password has the liability that yes, there is still way, a way around it, but there, that's inherently that's always going to be true unless you have authentication. And the, the only way to add authentication would be, for example, to give the access point a certificate, which the station could check. And there we're talking about a huge change, way more than turning on a feature which all access points points already have but just have disabled by default so anyway that's that's the one thing i wanted to say that i didn't get across last week was that turning on wpa is not utterly absolute protection there there you could have fire sheet pro which would be <laughs> much more involved and 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 um you know uh, a much higher level um uh plug-in to, to to create, but just turning on WPA shuts down FireSheep and brings up encryption, which I still think is a very worthwhile thing to do. More, a couple more questions, starting with uh, Ian Shane. Stephen Lee, I want to share this very nice chart at digitalsociety.org showing their analysis uh, of their security under the FireSheep threat. Basically, it's a report card for online services uh, red being uh, no SSL auth authentication, and then they actually cover sidejacking and uh, and full hijacking. Yeah, it's a really neat grid. I wanted to let our listeners know. Um, I have th there's a short little Bitly link. Um, uh, we can, we can just say it. It's bit.ly slash lowercase c uppercase j the numeral eight uppercase x lowercase i lowercase g and that'll take you to this much longer url at digitalsociety.org which is a it's cool analysis they did in lieu of firesheep this this was created in the wake of firesheep to take a look at where where major sites like that are targets of firesheep like amazon and um and facebook and so forth uh stand pop mail is bad Unless you have SSL turned on. SMTP, bad, unless you have SSL turned on. IMAP, bad, unless you have SSL. FTP, bad. So turn on SSL on everything, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of these sites, you don't have that as an option. And so that's that's the really uh, that's the issue, isn't it? Exactly. And yeah. it's not under our control, as this next questioner asks. Right. Uh, moving along to our next question. Dean in North Dakota, he's asking about secure cookies. I'd like to hear about ways for individuals to enforce cookie encryption ah there'd be a solution right one possibility is no surprise no script in the no script options 
Under the Advanced tab is an HTTPS tab where one can enforce secure cookies. NoScript tries to append a secure flag to cookies. I'd like to hear your advice on this or other solutions. Thanks for a great show. Okay, so this is what I've talked about before. Um, it is possible for a cookie to be, when it's issued, when it's given to the browser, to be flagged as secure, meaning essentially that tells the browser, send this cookie back to me, the server, every time you make a, a query a query to the domain which qualifies, but only if you're doing it over a secure connection. So the beauty of that is you don't have to worry about, for example, we've talked about SSL strip, uh, SSL strip which is the, the man-in-the-middle attack that removes the S's from the HTTP S's, essentially turning an otherwise secure site into an insecure site. In that case... Even if the site was trying to be secure, but its cookies had been flagged as not secure, that it had not been flagged as secure, then those cookies would be exposed any time a non-HTTPS query was made. If you simply flag the cookie secure, the browser, and all browsers support this, it's been there from the beginning, will never send the cookie unless the connection is known to be secure. So, so the problem is, if you turn that cookie, if you turn that flag on all cookies, then that you would starve a site that wasn't expecting that of its cookies. So the the site would just be sending out the cookie. No script would force the cookie to be secure. But then, if the site took the browser back to non-secure, the browser would say, "Oh, I can't send this cookie back." because it's been flagged secure. It's because no script flagged it secure. The server didn't flag it secure. So the browser's not going to return it. So so it's it's of some value. That's the reason I've never talked about it before, is that I'm not really clear what this buys you. If you if you knew that you were always using HTTPS, then if that site wasn't flagging its cookies secure by all means absolutely that's a cool thing for noscript to do but until we're always using https it it doesn't make sense and if we're not using https then we don't have security anyway so uh, it's it's kind of valuable i mean maybe useful but i would say use it with caution because you could find it breaks things one last question and uh, this comes from Robert Walker in Atlanta, Georgia. He shares GitHub's post-FireSheep changes. Steve, I'm guessing you're already aware of this. But in case you haven't heard, check out the following. GitHub, by the way, is where FireSheep is stored. But it's used, uh, don't, don't think that it's somehow some spooky thing. It's used by uh, programmers all the time. Even Apple uses it. Uh, it's a, uh, a, uh, a place, a code repository where shared code can be stored. Uh, and yeah, what... Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, what I liked about this was that um, GitHub uh, is one of the sites that FireSheet was aware of. And so they oh, said, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Ah. Yeah. And so they said, whoa, we got to fix this. And so what they did was they they made some changes immediately afterwards where they did exactly what we were talking about with secure cookies. They flagged 
secure cookies. Um, that is essentially they created a session cookie for when you're not doing important things and a secure cookie for when you are doing important things. So they used to have just one cookie which was used universally, whether you're over secure connection or not. Now they've got two, and the one that is over secure connection is flagged as um, as being secure. So they have they proactively um, uh, made sure that they were going to be safe against this. And I, I think I misspoke, Leo. I meant the TourCon. I meant that the TourCon conference was supported by FireSheep. I don't know whether GitHub. Is now, but they said, "Well, we're not going to be caught case. out by this, yeah, because we're hosting this, so we want to make sure we're uh, safe against yeah. it." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that probably is a good idea. And you don't want somebody checking in as you and changing your code. That actually has a huge security implication uh, because a lot of code is stored there. Yep. And if uh, you weren't aware of it, and somebody checked in and put a a bug in your code, you, you, I mean, and by a bug, I mean a trojan in your code. Yeah, it's open source. Yeah, you'd, you'd have some problems. Uh, we are. I'm going to save uh, Tom's cocoon and um, Bob Bent's question about NASA's for another time because we are out of time. Sounds great. We'll do them in two weeks. You can, of course, always visit Steve's site, grc.com, for 16 and 64 kilobit versions of this show. You can get the transcriptions there so you can read along as Steve talks. And, of course, that's where Spinrite lives, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, a must-have for anybody. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite. Lots of free stuff there, too. G rc.com uh, Steve will be back next week do, do we know what we're going to talk about I think you had a, a topic bench, didn't you the benchmark the DNS benchmarks DNS benchmark yep right we had to defer that last week for uh, breaking news with fire sheep and I'm glad you did couldn't have been a more topical topic That's so perfect thanks for your questions folks you can leave questions for Steve at security now I'm sorry grc.com slash feedback grc.com slash feedback and we record this show normally when we're not delayed by a Facebook announcement every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. Actually, next week, because of uh, we're going to switch to uh, back from daylight savings time, I think then we're uh, going to be at 1900 UTC. I'll have ah. to do my math later. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do the math. 11 a.m. Pacific Time. And uh, Steve, I thank you. We'll see you next time on Secure Thanks, Leo. Security now.